Well, would you open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 20? And we'll pray before we look into God's word, inviting the Holy Spirit to do the ministry that it can do for us and in us. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. Oh, just the promises it gives us, the good news of the gospel it gives us, the life of Jesus that it gives us, a truth for us to live by. Oh, as Jesus said, to sanctify us, your people, but to sanctify them in truth. So we come to that truth this morning, Lord, with a desire for it to speak to our hearts, to our minds, and to our lives. That through the teaching, the preaching, and the examination of your word, that your spirit gives us insight, but also it does a way of conforming us to Christ. Through things we hear, through things that we see in your word, but how the spirit has that freedom to impact each one of us in the way that he needs to do, to cause us to focus our eyes on Jesus, to find ourselves walking in pace with the spirit and your word, So we become more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We've been in a study of the Ten Commandments. It comes in a time when Moses is on Mount Sinai, and God is is given instructions to the nation on how to be a nation. And therefore, the commandments come along to describe those laws that they must live by. But they're also the laws that create a culture for the nation of Israel setting them apart from other nations. It's sort of when you get through the first four commandments, they all do it with a relationship with God. And someone says, that's first tablet. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. But then the next commandments all deal with relationships with people. And with that, that's like the second tablet, to love your neighbor as yourself. And as we've been going through them, we've seen the idea that possibly that word honor your parents seems to be the overarching word when it comes to that second tablet. The way we honor people. One is there's a sense of obedience to the word of God. Two, there's a respect we show to people, but there's also a way that we care for them and who they are. And so we come to this next commandment. It also brings in, I think, that aspect of how we honor that aspect of marriage and what it is. And here's the commandment. What we read in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. It's about prayer. I'm sorry, it's about marriage, not about prayer. It's about marriage. And as it talks about marriage, in a sense, it's a very simple application you can draw from it immediately. So for example, being about marriage, it talks about the rightful place of sexual intimacy in marriage. With that, what it's going to tell us is that there's purity when you're unmarried. It tells us that you're faithful when you are married. And if you have sexual intimacy outside of marriage, it's called adultery. And that's the basic message that you have here. And to understand in society as he's building, as laying down the law for the nation, understand that marriage becomes a, a cornerstone of culture. And that relationship between a husband and wife becomes a cornerstone to the culture of a commitment to one another. But to really understand this, we need to go back to Genesis because we need to see what marriage is all about. It's where the nation of Israel already has the scriptures and they've had the stories that they've heard about Adam and Eve and all that's come forth. They've got a foundation of what the scriptures already teach about what marriage is. So turn with me to Genesis chapter two. Genesis chapter two. 
What we find in Genesis chapter 2 is where all of a sudden we have the creation of Adam, but also Eve. And it's where God's going to bring them together. And Adam's going to make this exclamation of what marriage is all about. But also recall how the story unfolds. Adam's been created by God. God formed him out of the dust. He's breathed into his nostrils. And it seems as Adam named all the animals, it was like everything was good, but there was not one found for Adam. And so he fell asleep. And while he was asleep, God took from his side or his rib. Now that rib, he formed woman. And then God brought Eve, the woman, to Adam. And Adam is so excited that there's this woman, somebody who matches up with him. And as he does that, here's what he says in Genesis 2 and 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And he identifies this picture. You leave, you cleave, you become one flesh. Now, it's interesting when you think about how we do a wedding ceremony of what takes place. Typically, what happens is everybody is seated and ready to go. The groom is up here with his best man. And all of a sudden, the music starts to play and the bridesmaids come in. They come in and then all of a sudden, the music stops. The door swings open and there's the bride and her dad. And all of a sudden, the music changes. Maybe here comes the bride, whatever the music is, and they start in. Everybody stands up and looks back at the bride and her dad. And that dad walks his daughter down the aisle all the way up to the front, and then he stops. Now keep in mind how the Old Testament said that God worked with Adam. God created Eve, and he walked Eve all the way to Adam. Then when they get there, all of a sudden this little thing takes place. It looks really minor. The dad's there and oftentimes he'll give a kiss to his daughter and a hug. And then he takes her hand and gives it to the groom. And the two of them walk away. And then they stand before the pastor to do the ceremony. And all of a sudden as you watch that scene... You watch them walk down the aisle. You watch that dad stand there with his daughter. And he slowly hands her off and she leaves. She leaves the father behind. And then walks away as she cleaves to her husband-to-be. And our ceremony just pictures exactly what takes place here in the Old Testament that there's a leaving and a cleaving and the one flesh. That picture of cleaving, it's like super glue that gets together. That word in the Old Testament, they they just stick. It's like you can't pull them apart without tearing them apart. Now as a family, we had, and we still do, have five kids. And um, I discovered on occasion you could lose one. Not for long, but, but you just didn't know where they were. So on this one day when we were living in North Dakota, we had been out shopping and everything, had the van all filled and all, and we were coming in the house and we started unloading the van and got everything in the house. And, and we're just all unpacking stuff and putting things around. All of a sudden, I was, we're missing a kid. 
Oh, where's this kid? And it's like, oh, there's nobody in the house. Well, the only thing left was, oh no, are they outside? So we, I go out to the front porch and our front porch was um, about five steps down and it had this uh, metal railing that went down right next to the steps. And I come out and find one of my children had stuck their tongue out to lick the metal banister. And all of a sudden it's looking, it's like, and it was a good thing. They did not, they did not pull away. If you pull away like that, you know what would happen to your tongue? It just rips all the skin off. Your tongue will just bleed uncontrollably. And, and they stayed there. They just stayed there. I went inside and got some warm water and started pouring some warm water. And finally, finally, the tongue pulled away. And they came on inside. But that's the picture of cleaving. That's what marriage is. It's cleaving. And if for some reason you pull it apart, it rips apart. There's destruction. There's wounds. There's hurts. Because God designed marriage that you leave mother and father. You cleave to your spouse. And then you become one flesh. And how does the ceremony unfold? As you come walking down the aisle, as they leave their dad behind, as they cleave to one another, you announce their marriage. Then what we talk about is what happens next. They have the reception, and then it's the honeymoon at which they become one flesh. And all that we have here in Genesis is how marriage was designed by God. This is what they anticipate. There's not this picture of the adultery taking place. It's they become one flesh and stay together. But something occurs in Genesis chapter 3. So turn over to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7. So we've got the temptation that's taking place. Eve has eaten of the fruit, given it to Adam. Now they've both eaten of the fruit. Here's the next thing we read. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What we had in the first chapter was they stood naked before one another and they were not ashamed. But after the fall, after the fall, that's not true. Somehow after the fall, when we look in a mirror, we do not see the beauty of creation. When we look in a mirror, we see a brokenness that somehow we just don't match up. That somehow when we think of our own nakedness, there's even a shame that can come with it. That somehow our immediate response is to cover it up. Because after the fall, there's a brokenness in our relationships physically and sexually. And so when we start talking about marriage coming together, we read there in Genesis 2 and think this is what it should be. And it should be. But we also live on the other side of the fall. And we get this brokenness of what we have. So that coming together is not, is not as easy as it sounds in Genesis 2. We may have sexual wounds. You know, situations that occurred. Then we get married. It doesn't become as simple. As simple as it sounds in Genesis 2. That that intimacy becomes more difficult. And it takes more work than we ever thought it should. 
And all of a sudden, when we come to Gen- or Exodus, we're finding out the instructions become, listen, we live on the other side of the fall, and the potential for adultery occurs because of this brokenness that we have in our heart. And to know when we come together, we need to stay together. And that that sexual intimacy is designed for that marriage. And that faithfulness, faithfulness is what is being called for. And if we're not married, purity is what's being called for. Because within marriage, you have sexual intimacy. Outside of marriage, there's no sexual intimacy. And so we find this teaching, this understanding, here's the foundation of a nation, the foundation of culture, the foundation of what God wants marriage to be. So as we hear the command that says, don't commit adultery, then we start wrestling with what transpires, what works that somehow we have adultery in marriages. And that's because of misunderstanding of even knowing how sexual intimacy plays out and what the risks are, and what the temptations are that we face. So Jesus comes along and takes the same commandment, and once again is going to go a little deeper for us to understand what adultery looks like, how it can come about, what triggers it at all. So turn with me to Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. Matthew 25 27 to 30. Jesus says this. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus shifts adultery and wants to understand where it's really rooted. Adultery is not rooted in actually the engagement of the sexual intimacy. He wants us to understand that adultery starts way before that. For somebody to say, oh, I didn't know it, I committed adultery, just may step back and say, wait a second, something occurred prior to adultery. There's something in your heart that prompted and triggered that adultery. There's a lust, there's a desire in your heart that somehow produces that adultery. It just didn't happen. Somehow in our hearts are these desires, these triggers, these possibilities that are created in us that all of a sudden adultery becomes a potential in our lives. And Jesus wants to understand, listen, there's something in your heart and somehow temptation works, how lust comes about. James even talks about the idea that lust and sin is the idea that it sits out there and it's almost like a fishing where it's on the hook and it's sort of, come on in, come on in. And it's calling us into sin is the way that desire works and temptation works. There's something that triggers this lust in our heart, this desire we want satisfied. And it's triggered, it's triggered to respond us to think about those triggers. What are the things that can trigger our lust? To somehow prompt us to lust for a man or for a woman, to somehow out of our cleaving to one another, actually cause us to turn and look elsewhere. 
One of the most obvious ones is what I'll call is our worldly culture. Turn to 1 John 2 with me. I want you to see where the scriptures talk about the culture we live in. 1 John 2, 1 John 2 and verse 16. We read this. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We have a worldly culture out here that works with the idea of somehow impacting our eyes so that we see things that we shouldn't see. And our eyes draw us, draw us into temptation and to sin. And I want you to think about our worldly culture. All the visuals that we see on a regular basis. How you cannot turn on television without watching some ads that somehow is using sexuality to draw your attention in. If you watch the television programs that are on, there's the constant, constant walking through you, sexuality and sin on a regular basis, showing you things that you should not see. If you go to the movies and you're watching a movie, it may only be one scene, but somehow it draws you sexually into what you see. Or if you go on the internet, of all the things you can click on, which draw your eyes to see things you shouldn't see, to hear things you shouldn't hear, that create a culture of lust in our hearts and triggers of something we may want that we desire is outside of our own marriage. Turn to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, because we're told of a second one that prompts us in this. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. Marriage is so important to understand that marriage is actually engaged in spiritual warfare. It's one of the few times that a thing, like marriage is identified, Satan is at work. Satan is going to work in this situation. Here's what we read. And this verse is three to five. It says this. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. But likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps, by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Have you ever thought that the lust that you wrestle with in your heart is actually prompted by Satan? Satan, who's attempting to tempt us to break our marriage vows then in our desire to stay faithful, Satan is working hard out there to draw us away from our spouse and into another relationship. And it starts working within our hearts by the lust, the desires that he can put in our minds to think of what we may have. And so that trigger may not just be the worldly culture, 
It could be satanic temptation that actually is driving and prompting our lust. Uh, Let me give you a third one. And that comes from this text here, which I'll call extended infrequency. Did you notice what the text said? That you're to stop depriving one another. In other words, they were depriving themselves of one another of having sexual relationships. They were depriving sexual intimacy in their marriage. They were not engaging in it. And all of a sudden he stops and he says, listen, folks, you, you can't do that. Marriage was designed to leave and cleave and become one flesh. You have to stop depriving one another. And he goes on. He says, unless you do it for a, by agreement, mutual agreement, a limited time for the purpose of prayer. And so all of a sudden a trigger, a lustful trigger can be when all of a sudden there are those times of infrequency of sexual intimacy. Well, there's times it may be required. You may go through surgery or something, and all of a sudden, it's not possible. It may be in the military where all of a sudden you're sent to another country and deployed. There are reasons that it may happen, but even if it does on those occasions, rest assured, it's a highly, highly temptable time that Satan will come in and challenge our very self-control when all of a sudden in that marriage relationship we deprive one another of that sexual intimacy. Because all of a sudden he's identifying our responsibilities to meet the needs of our spouse. And if we're not doing that, we put them at risk. We put them at risk of being tempted by Satan within frequency and sexual intimacy. And all of a sudden, there's the risk of adultery. Now, there's a fourth one, now called emotional disconnectedness. The whole idea that that intimate relationship of one flesh is more than just physically having a one flesh. That one flesh brings in the whole relationship and our whole life together. It deals with our emotions. It deals with our minds. It deals with our bodies. And it's identifying when you think of your relationship, there's an emotional side for us in marriage too. Where we want to be listened to. We want to be heard. We want somebody to care for us. We want somebody to love us. We want them to speak well to us. We want kind words, encouraging words. We don't want to hear coarse words and cruel words. And all of a sudden we have this need for emotional support and comfort. But within our marriage... If that communication breaks down, that physical care, and I don't mean sexual intimacy, I just mean the physical care of a touch, of holding, of a kiss, of a tap, of rustling the hair. If there's not that sense of care, if there's not that emotional point, there becomes a disconnectedness and opens up men and women of somebody will just listen to them, just care for them, to just give them time. And all of a sudden, a chat room on the internet becomes a place that somebody can connect to just says, boy, I'm sad to hear that. And somebody cares. But I wish I could be there to help you get through this. You know, if I was there, I'd just put my arm around you and just try to comfort you. And, and you hear those words and you realize you're not getting in your marriage. And that just creates a lust that we can have there as well. Now this last one I have, 
You may debate me on it afterwards, but we can do that afterwards. But what I called it was spiritual disappointment. The reason for that is, I think we read through the Bible and read those passages that deal with sexual intimacy. We stop and say, huh, that's what I want in my marriage. Whether we find it in Proverbs or Song of Solomon or even in this passage right here, 1 Corinthians 7, there's this anticipation what the Bible says and how well it speaks of the celebration of life as a married couple, this great joy that we have that's brought together by that sexual, the thing that God promises that happens in marriage. And as some would say, it's actually a worship event that you have. And you see what the Bible says about it and all of a sudden you look at your marriage and find out that's not what it is. And you may actually want to bring the scriptures to your spouse and say, see what the Bible says? But it's a disappointment. Because the Bible does describe it that way. But that's not where you find yourself. And all of a sudden, this lust gets tempted. What the Bible says should be, you find it's not. And it's still not there, folks, because we live on this side of the fall. And they need to talk and process through our relationship with one another, that time to listen, to hear, especially if there's any wounds, any wounds that have occurred in the past that need to be healed to move forward in the future. And how we bring that together in our marriage relationship. Jesus is telling us we need to be aware. We need to be aware of the triggers of lust, because out of our hearts will come adultery. And the thing to pay attention to this, he's not just talking about married people here. He doesn't just single them out. He talks about the way lust works. Whether you're married or single, there's a risk of lust in our hearts that would cause us to engage in sexual intimacy outside the plan of God. In marriage, it's called adultery. It's impurity or fornication if you're not married. And they're both sins. And Jesus is bringing us to understand that that lust in our hearts can lead us to that sin. If we bring that together, what Jesus is saying, and we tie it in with what Moses has given us back there, it's telling us that here's what we need to understand. We're to honor marriage And we're to honor sexual intimacy. We honor marriage for what it is and how it's to function. That we leave, we cleave and become one flesh. But it also means whether we're single or married, we honor sexual intimacy to understand what it is and where it is to be enjoyed. That means if we're not married, it is not to be enjoyed. If we do it outside of marriage, that's adultery. It's not to be enjoyed there. It's the idea it's brought together to understand that we're to honor marriage and we're to honor the sexual intimacy that's within marriage. If that's true, here's some things to think about. First, marriage, if you're not married, then the instruction is maintain your purity. Oh, it's easy for us to say that. It's easy to say it if you're not dating someone. It's easy to say if you're not if you're not engaged to someone. But as soon as you start dating, as soon as you start engagement, you start talking about a relationship that is moving towards marriage. 
And what you wrestle with in that relationship is the physical relationship. And what the scriptures want you to know is, if you're unmarried, it's to maintain purity. That's maintained if you've never been married. If you're divorced and not married. If you're a widow, widower, not married. In all those settings, purity, purity is maintained if you're not married. Second one is, if you are married, you're to meet the sexual needs of your spouse. Uh, that's what 1 Corinthians 7 is all about. That the responsibility, the thing that protects, the thing that keeps you faithful, the thing that squanders the lust, that he, the things that holds into checks, is that you meet the needs of your spouse. And being aware of what those are. And making sure you are doing that. The third one, and this becomes part, important if you're married or if you're not married, and that is to change your lustful heart of knowing what it is. Now recall a song that our kids learned when they were little. Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. For your father up above is looking down in love. So be careful little eyes what you see. But the song goes on and says, be careful little hands what you do. And be careful little feet where you go. Just an important instructions for us. If we're going to be ones, we're going to change our lustful hearts. We have to pay attention to what we see. We have to pay attention to what we hear. We have to pay attention to what we do. We have to pay attention to where we go. That we avoid those places that prompt, that tempt, that create this lust in our heart and this desire to move away from purity or faithfulness. And it works by changing, changing the lust of our hearts. You all know what I'm talking about. Some of you have important things you need to change. There's things that you expose yourself to in some way on a regular basis that you just find, somehow find this constant pressure of needing sexual intimacy because you're constantly putting yourself in a place that's creating a lust for that intimacy. And there's a need to just shut it down. When you think of Joseph in the Old Testament, tempted by Potiphar's wife, and her coming to him, wanted to have sexual intimacy with him. And his response was, he fled. When Paul wrote to young Timothy, he says a couple of times to him, flee, flee youthful lust. Don't stay and battle it, just get away from it. And we need to change our hearts. A fourth one is, if you're married, stop your adultery. You could be here today and your spouse doesn't know this. But you're engaged in adultery. And you need to stop. You need to stop now. It can't go on. And that's exactly what the scripture's saying. Stop. Stop committing adultery.
But then you may say, well, what if I have? What if I have committed adultery? There's a passage in John chapter 8 where Jesus meets up with an adulterous woman. As he meets up with her and there's a conversation that takes place with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They go through this conversation and everything and they bring her to him and says she's committed adultery. Jesus tells them the first one who's not sinned throw the first stone. And slowly they all walk away and it's just Jesus and the woman left. And Jesus looks down to the woman and uh, he says to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one. The Lord said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. There is forgiveness. There's forgiveness for adultery. There's forgiveness if there's impurity. There's forgiveness if there's been sexual intimacy. And God wants us to know as Christ looked at this woman, he provided forgiveness for her. So no matter what, whatever sexual sins we may have committed, though God would not say that was a right thing to do, he does identify that there's forgiveness. There's forgiveness for sexual sin. And we find ourselves coming before the cross and realize, you know, the one thing that controls that lust in our hearts it's when we come to know Christ as our Savior because we're new creatures in Christ. We are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is working in our lives to mold us and shape us to be like Christ. And the Holy Spirit is one who produces the fruit of the Spirit and against our fruit or the evidence of our flesh that we have and the desires we have and against that lust and we come to know Christ, there is a power and a strength that is within us that we're able to overcome the sin of this world. And that Holy Spirit gives us power also to resist temptation and to resist the lust that we hear from the world and other places. And it will guard our hearts to walk with Christ. Oh, the gospel is so good and clear. The need to trust in Christ as our personal Savior, that brings transformation. If you've never trusted Christ, it brings forgiveness of sins immediately and gives the opportunity to go into heaven. Understand that Christ has died on the cross for our sins, that he was raised on the third day, that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved, and we become new creatures at that time. So as followers of Christ... With the foundation of the gospel, we can be faithful in our marriages. We can be those who are pure if we're not married. We can be those who resist the temptation and the lusts because of the power of the gospel to work in us and through us and then allows us to be those people who honor marriage and honor sexual intimacy.